do. As I told the first service, I'm Tim. I'm still 54, and I wish that I could stay that age, but uh, Allison's still 14. She did great, didn't she? Did she do a great job? Soon to be 15, but, you know, you get, you're getting better and better at this. The more you get up here, the more comfortable you get with it, and so, uh, but I love her heart for um, ministering to these kids around the world and using Samaritan's Purse, so thank you, and I was just thinking there, now, we have three daughters, none of them are married yet, so we don't have any grandkids, but I, 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 my wife would die to someday do this with her granddaughter, like you did, so I, my wife would love that, to, to be up here with a granddaughter, and some of you uh, that have never done ministry with the very people in your life, uh, it's a good example to uh, serve together, so thank you for doing that. Um, and her parents really are in Africa. She was not kidding about that. They just got to Tanzania what, two days ago, and I know we have a lot of people that are out of town for this holiday weekend, but very few are in Africa. Uh, they really are in Africa. And I told them, take pictures of lions, because I love lions. But, uh, but uh, they're there, and glad to have you here. And if you're visiting family here in town for this weekend, I know we've got some that are doing the opposite. Uh, good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, I do not have hardly, Mark, you did a great job with those announcements, thank you. I don't have much in the way of announcements other than say welcome, and if you're online, uh, watching us online, if you're out of town, joining us remotely, we're glad to have you here as well. Uh, I do have one reminder, this Wednesday is our prayer night, our monthly prayer night. Uh, we started a brand new month on Friday. Uh, Friday was one of the most beautiful days of the year, was it not? It was just incredible. Don't get all your pumpkin spice out just yet, because it's going to be 96 this week, uh, and maybe get it back out the week after next. But um, but uh, the last two days have been absolutely gorgeous. Uh, this Wednesday night, uh, we'll be glad we have air conditioning, because there's going to be another hot one. But we'll be in here, uh, and if you're able to join us that night for prayer, and even fast throughout the day, uh, if you're able to fast even just one meal, if you can fast the whole day, that's... Uh, great, uh, but uh, if you have a medical condition, you can't fast, but you can fast from other things. Uh, seek the Lord on what that would be. But we'll be gathered here 6.30 Wednesday night to pray and intercede and to praise. And so uh, join us uh, for that time of prayer uh, on Wednesday night. And with that, uh, we're going to pray for revival. I had to do something in the first service I've never done before. Last Sunday, my cold was in full force, and I gutted it out, and I probably sounded like uh, two octaves different or something, but um, this week it's kind of like gone, but now uh, at the end, you know, you have this dry tickle kind of thing, and um, I went to pray in the first service, and I was about to cough for the next 15 minutes. I said, I just pointed at Trevor, and I did like this, and I went out, and he came up, and everyone else was on their knees praying, and they heard a different voice. They thought I had left the building. <laughs> But then I came right back, and, was, and, and my voice did great the whole uh, rest of the service. So, uh, Lord willing, that will not happen again. But if it does, uh, if I have to take a quick exit, you'll know it, because uh, I literally will have to step off. But uh, I didn't have to do it after that. So, uh, if you're able to, uh, we've been praying for revival for uh, many years now, and uh, our nation still desperately needs a, a work of repentance and revival. And ever since the pandemic... Uh, we started getting on our knees, and, and then uh, I had almost stopped it, but the Lord just gave me like three, four verses in a row saying, continue it. So we've been doing that. If you're able to, and I know that not everybody can, not everybody's knees can do that, but, uh, and if it's tight where you're at, that's fine too. But if you're able to get on your knees for about 45 seconds of silence, we pray for our country, we pray for revival. We'll be praying for the nation of Sierra Leone 
today in the nation uh, in the continent of Africa, and then we'll get into Acts chapter five. Let's pray. Once again, we come before you, we humble our hearts, we humble our, even our bodies, Lord, just to bend in our posture to kneel before you. We know that we need a touch from you. We know that you desire to do a work in us individually, a work of revival, a renewing, of refreshing in us more than we would even want it. Lord, you desire to bring our country to a place of repentance far more than we could ever understand. And so, Lord, we uh, again ask for you to soften hearts, to open eyes. Lord, even us in this room, if, if we know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we want to be in love with you more than we are. We want to be uh, conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, we want to be refreshed and renewed and, Lord, uh, given a steadfast spirit and, Lord, uh, restore to anyone here that needs the restoration of the joy of their salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray for our country, Lord, that uh, we are following so many false gods, so much idolatry, so much sexual immorality, so many addictions. We see the violence. We see the bondage. We see, Lord, all of the issues. Uh, and, Lord, we can't even see at the heart level that you see. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would open eyes that are in darkness. We pray that you would raise people out of uh, the deadness of sin into eternal life. We pray that there'd be a work of repentance, Lord. And the most powerful people in this nation and people that have no power at all, Lord, that there would be a turning to you. Uh, there'd be a work of repentance in the church. And Lord, even, even in the pulpits of America, in the pews of America, there'd be a work of true revival and awakening. Uh, Lord, we pray that... Um, it would happen here in this church. We pray that we would grow in your grace. We pray for the nation of Sierra Leone in Africa. We know that you love the people there, and we're grateful for what you're doing there. But Lord, we pray that every single person there hears the gospel, and there's a great work of repentance revival in that nation and around the world. And we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, Lord. We remember them this morning, wherever they may be, that you would lift them out, that you would heal them, that you would restore them with their families. And Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. Thank you for kneeling if you're able to. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I know uh, Mark asked if you needed one, but if you have one, uh, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and 5, and we'll, we'll actually uh, be studying Acts chapter 5. But I wanted to read, uh, I have not taught from the book of Acts since the last... Sunday in July, and then I was out for three weeks, and and then last week I did a, a message, um, uh, What is Your Almost, from Psalm chapter 73, and if you didn't hear that, I'd encourage you to go out and listen to it, not because I preached it, but just because uh, Psalm 73 will speak to your heart, and uh, so I think it'll be a blessing to you, but 
we haven't been in the book of Acts since the last Sunday, and we closed, we finished the, the fourth chapter. But as you probably know, uh, when the Bible was written, they did not have chapter marks. Uh, it was written, in this case, uh, you know, the, uh, Luke, the physician, uh, wrote the book of Acts, and it didn't say chapter 4 and chapter 5. It just was written out. And so there would be no break. And what takes place at the end of chapter 4 is directly related to the first half of chapter 5. So what's going to take place here, what we'll read in chapter 5, is coming on the heels of what he just was describing at the end of chapter 4. So because we have not read in Acts since the last Sunday in July, let's read the end of chapter 4 and the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And I'll start with verse 32 of chapter 4. Uh, so we see it all in context. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of land or of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of all those things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to anyone as had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land, keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those, heard, all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell, tell me uh, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her body, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you again for the ministry of your word, that your Holy Spirit, who uh, prompted Luke to write these things down, that we would learn from them, we'd be admonished by them, we'd be corrected by them. And, Lord, even comforted by them. We ask, Lord, that your word would have its perfect place here this morning, that whether someone's watching online or in this room, they would hear exactly, precisely what the Spirit is saying to them, to us, to me personally. Lord, I pray that uh, you would indeed 
Lord, help us lay aside anything that would hinder our walk with you. I ask for uh, the endowment of your spirit. I ask for the anointing of your spirit. I could never preach or teach these things without your help. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity in this teaching, but also, Lord, that you would just move mightily among us, that we would be hearers, not just doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 3, and Acts chapter 4, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel that took the apostles in a prayer meeting of about 120 and then resulted in a work of repentance and salvation and changed lives that was literally touching every corner of Jerusalem. First, we saw 3,000 souls saved, then a miraculous healing of a man who had been lame from birth, then 5,000 souls were saved. And then we had the, following that, we had the inevitable opposition from the very religious leaders and rulers that plotted and ultimately killed Jesus. But just as the death of Jesus did not result in what they were expecting, with Jesus rising from the dead in indescribable power and glory, their knee-jerk reaction, being the religious leaders, of throwing the apostles in jail, that didn't result in exactly what they were expecting. Remember, upon being released, the apostles held yet another prayer meeting, and the entire place was shaken. That would be great this Wednesday night, right? The entire place was shaken. And after that prayer meeting, they preached the word and the gospel with a renewed passion and power. Would you not want a renewed passion for Jesus? And the church there in Jerusalem, it was already unified, but it was further unified. I kind of think about me and my wife have a great marriage, but yet God can make it even greater. How about your life? You can be close, and yet God can make you closer. So they were unified in the Spirit in both their love for Jesus, but also their gratitude for the resurrection power that was now in their lives. And they were, as you saw in the end of chapter 4, Luke writes, they were of one heart and one soul. I wish that was the case. The American church is quite fragmented. What followed that brief imprisonment and prayer meeting was a wave of surrender and compassion for people with legitimate needs and a generosity towards one another and towards the ministry of making disciples. They really, all of a sudden, there was this spirit of giving that began to flow. The believers there in Jerusalem, prompted by the Holy Spirit, it wasn't a giving campaign. There's nothing wrong with giving campaigns, but it was not a giving campaign. There was no compulsion. There was no guilt trip. But they were selling houses and lands and possessions to sacrificially provide for others and to extend the work of the gospel. That's a pretty big deal. You might there. I don't know if anyone in this church owns two houses, a couple people might, and I don't even know about it. If you're secretly rich, you can tell us later. But um, we don't know any, but, but you know, even if you own two houses, it's a pretty big deal if you sold one and gave it all away. But they were doing this sacrificially for the work of the gospel. And this, all of this giving that was taking place that was not prompted by the apostle, it was just people being prompted by the Spirit, was well above any tithes and offerings. This was just like in the Old Testament, Moses had this 
offering for the tabernacle that they gave so much that he had to tell the people, stop giving. We've never had that problem here. I don't even teach on giving that much, but we've never had that issue. It'd be a nice issue to have once. But anyway, the Spirit was speaking, and when the Spirit's speaking, it makes a world of difference. When the Spirit speaks to people, it does a lot better job than you and me. And while the Spirit was flowing with this grace and with this love that was uh, flowing, men like Barnabas, who believed that souls being reached and lives being changed and saved was far more valuable than his own land in Cyprus. Well, as that was happening, Satan was working silently. The enemy was working the shadows to tempt to bring pride and sin and selfish ambitions, things that threaten to quench the work of the Spirit and weaken the church. And while the people can, uh, in, in any generation back then, now, while people can try and justify their actions and why they succumb to temptations, God will be God, and he will remind us of his lordship and his holiness and the fact that he doesn't take sin lightly. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, There Must Be a Fear of the Lord. In us personally, in his church, throughout the body of believers, there must be a fear of the Lord. Yes, Jesus commands our worship. Yes, he commands the scriptures to be taught, for the gospel to be proclaimed, for prayers to be lifted, for disciples to be built up, and for unity and love throughout the body. All these things Jesus commands. But he also commands that the church is clean. As individuals and collectively as a body that we're walking in purity. I don't know if you've noticed, we live in a really impure world. Have you noticed that? There is a lot of filth. Jesus wants a clean bride and a filthy world and a dark world and a depraved world. And you and I, before we're saved, we had the same depravity. We were, we were inclined to the same thing. God has to give us new desires, new affections. But he wants us to be pure where our hearts match the outside work. If the heart doesn't match the outside work, you have something called hypocrisy, right? He wants the heart to match the outside work. Not perfect, but not pretending, right? There's a lot of pretenders in all kinds of spheres, and there's a lot of, been a lot of pretenders in the church as well. He doesn't, he doesn't expect us to be perfect, but not pretending. Authentic, genuine followers of the Lord. And what this Holy Spirit could see that nobody else could see was that a little bit of poison was seeping into the church, and no one else knew it but the Holy Spirit. A little bit of poison, a little bit of sin. Paul warned of this to the churches in Galatia and in Corinth, and, I, and uh, he says it twice in both Galatians 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 5.6, but he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, leaven does not always signify sin in the Bible, but it is used at times to signify sin. So sometimes leaven is actually portrayed in a good light, but it's not unusual for it to also be portrayed as a little leaven being sin. 
and you put a little leaven in, it affects the whole loaf. It affects the whole body. A little bit of sin. I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with a little bit of sewage or a little bit of poison in anything I drink. How about you? Uh, it's just a drop. Well, it's, some things, can, a drop of certain poisons are so strong, they can not only kill you, but all of us. That's how powerful some poisons can be. We can have, and many of you have experienced uh, cancer in your families. Montel and I, we both, one of our sisters passed away from cancer. We'll get to see her someday in heaven. But cancer can start out as a tiny microscopic mutation that's invisible, but ends up destroying the entire body. And the same is the case with sin. We might not see it that way, but God sees it that way. It's so destructive. And the Holy Spirit takes sin very seriously, as we see here in Acts chapter 5. And by the way, whatever God considers important and serious, guess what? Is important and serious. God considers important and serious. We can guarantee that it is. Now back to verses 1 and 2. Again, we read the end of chapter 4 for context, but verses 1 and 2, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. We know that as Ananias arrives to present this financial gift to the church, that this was happening quite a bit. You saw at the end of chapter 4, lots of people were selling things. Some people sold a piece of uh, uh, maybe a field and gave it to the apostles. Some people probably sold raiments, some of their clothing. Said, hey, I don't have that kind of, but I, I, I can sell these three outfits and give that to the needs of the ministry of people that had specific needs. Many felt compelled by the Spirit to sell something of value, to give some free will offering of something they possessed. <coughs> Could have been, they had a few coins, they just wanted to give it for that, whatever it may have been. But the motives up until this point had been God-honoring motives. They were gifts of gratitude. They were thankful for the redemption that they had received from Jesus, and they were not looking for recognition. You ever notice how, like, uh, you know, I, I, I love history. I've watched all kinds of uh, documentaries on, you know, the men that built America and all these kind of things. And, and a lot of people have given over, but they, they get a lot of recognition for it too, don't they? They get stadiums named after themselves. They get academic halls. They get uh, a, a plaque on the pew. We don't have pews, so you don't have to worry about that here. But if we did, we wouldn't be putting a plaque so-and-so's row or whatever else, that people recognition. Barnabas' recent selling, so back at the end of chapter 4, we see that Barnabas had sold his property in Cyprus. He was a Levite. And when he sold that property, he was no doubt met with rejoicing because it probably helped a lot of people. Um, I said in the first service, I don't know who the richest, you know, rich is not even the word, I don't know who has the most wealth if you want to call it that, even in this church. But let's say somebody uh, does. God knows who it, they would be. And they sold everything. If they did, I mean, even if their house was paid for, uh, well, today's housing market, if your house is paid for, you are half a millionaire now. But uh, 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 all of a sudden, with the prices going up or everything, but if somebody sold all that and gave it, hey, can you distribute it to the, all the needs we have in the body? Some of you 
would be pretty happy with that individual say, I don't know who they are, but if I did know who they are, I'd like to give them a hug because that just paid for our kids' school supplies, and that just helped with Christmas, and that just helped with a medical bill, that helped with a car payment we're behind on. So a lot of people, when Barnabas did this, a lot of people were like, this is really a blessing from God. And so many people had probably been positively affected. And we can see, though, with Barnabas specifically, the remainder of Barnabas's life, his life, after he sold the land in uh, Cyprus, we know that he gives his entire life as a sacrifice. That's how you know it's legit, right? Because after he gives it, it wasn't like he gives it and then he kind of uh, goes back and says, after I did that, I'm really smart with business. I'm going to remake another million. I just gave that away. No, he actually goes and later he risks his life with the Apostle Paul taking the gospel to the other parts of the world. That ends up being the rest of Barnabas' life. But all that would be revealed later. You wouldn't know at that moment that Barnabas not only gave the gift, but he was going to give his entire self. When you meet him in heaven, he can tell you about some of the travails him and Paul went through. That was revealed later. What Ananias and Sapphira saw, when they saw the gifts others were given, and then Barnabas specifically probably shown a whole lot of affection and appreciation by the entire body of Christ. And none of that was why Barnabas gave it. It appears that this couple, seeing the attention that Barnabas got, began to crave the spotlight. How they could be recognized as sacrificial givers. It always amazes me how many Christians want to be known as super spiritual. Just follow Jesus. Don't try and make a spiritual name for yourself. You know, I, I want to be known as this and known by that. As soon as you do that, you stop being spiritual. As soon as you want to be known as spiritual, you're not spiritual. But the rub was, they wanted to give the gift, just like Barnabas had done. But unlike Barnabas, they didn't exactly want to give the entire amount. They're like, we don't want to, we want to go from really well off to kind of at least middle class. Yet they wanted everyone to think they gave the entire amount. They wanted the illusion that they had given everything. Did you know that even when you have a whole lot, your flesh is still going to want something else? Just when you finally get, maybe you've had the same beat up car for 10 years, you finally get the new car you've been dreaming about. Two weeks later, you'll be thinking, we need new carpet. We need this. We need that. And then you don't even know what you need until you go to Costco. And then you, um, <laughs> then you find out things that you need that you didn't even know existed. And how did you get by this long without them? Your flesh will always want something else. In fact, we want wealth or possessions or things because of how, we, how they make us feel or how we think they're going to make us feel. I mean, when someone, is, uh, someone buys a beach house and you're watching HGTV, they think by having the beach house that all of a sudden peace and calmness <laughs> will rule their life. Peace and calmness. I just sit here. I've got a Mai Tai. I've got a view of this. I'm not, I'm not endorsing Mai Tais. I'm simply saying this is the way they think. That peace and calmness. 
So even when people have money, they still want peace. Even when they have money, they want power. If they have money, they want position. If they have money, they want popularity. They want protection. That's why wealthy people who like to tell us all the other things, you know, some people in high position, notice they live in walled communities. You guys need to be doing this that, that, while we're in our walled community. Because what? That's protection. Protection means peace. At least that's what they think. These, what you, these are feelings. People do things for a feeling. Satan was one of the most beautiful and powerful of all of God's created angels. Do you guys know that? If you've read the scriptures, one of the most beautiful and powerful of all of God's created angels he lived in the very presence and perfection of God, and yet he wanted something more. What did he want? He wanted adoration. It wasn't enough that he had perfection. He wanted adoration, adoration that was reserved for God. And his heart, the Bible says, was lifted up with pride. And it was the entry point of all sin. Pride, his lifting up with pride, brought sin in ultimately to humanity. Adam and Eve would later follow suit. They doubted and disobeyed God. And even that, although that was disobedience, we could say, hey, that was the sin of disobedience, it also involved pride because they believed they knew more than God. Or they believed that Satan and them together knew more than God. And that's pride in and of itself. But Satan, instead of worshiping God, began to what? Envy God. Began to envy God. Pride is, it's so insidious, isn't it? It's been well said, when you're done dealing with every other sin, you will deal with pride the rest of your life. Yes, even Christians will deal with pride. Sometimes I say, especially at times, I'm thinking, what in the world are we thinking but pride is so insidious, it's actually the source of other sins. You think about it, uh, people will say one of two things, generally justifying whatever they say, do, their actions. They either believe they're right or believe that they had a right to do it. Just get, let me say that again. They either believe they're right or they believe had a right to do it. If God says you're wrong, you're wrong. And if God says you don't have a right to do it, you don't have a right to do it. To believe you do would be pride. You think of some of the tragic road rage scenes we've seen in our society. This that wasn't even a thing 30 years ago. It is now. It's like constant. And you see that um, you know, just someone taking someone else's lane in traffic, even if it was accidental, because all of us have done it accidentally. I have had three times this year almost got hit at a red light by somebody who was really not paying attention and light didn't even turn and they nearly hit me T-bone. Watch, people are really distracted today. I mean, I, I, like wait, I used to wait a car length, now I like, like 10 uh, because I know that everybody's on their phone or their mind is somewhere else. But you see these, thing, these road rage scenes and it all starts with pride and can even end with violence or even murder all because someone took your spot in traffic? Do you think Jesus would kill somebody for that? Of course not. In 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust is pervasive. We see that. 
We all have things that we lust after. It could be possessions, it could be position, it could be people, whatever it may. But lust is pervasive in, in the whole world. Everybody has to deal with it. And pride is also pervasive. In fact, lust comes from pride. Because pride says, I deserve this. By nature, we love ourselves. You know, you see the self-help people that uh, tell you, you just got to love yourself. That's not the problem. People already love themselves. <laughs> self-love is not an issue. They're, the people are born with self-love. They have to be broken out of self-love. It's a, it's a natural thing. We automatically love ourselves. It's only in Christ that we can die to ourselves. That's why His grace is sufficient, that we can actually die to ourselves. God wasn't telling Ananias and Sapphira, say, hey, you need, to, you need to make this whole thing about y'all. He was saying, no, you need to die to that. Instead, they turned up the heat on that in their own hearts. It's in Christ that we're able to think less of ourselves and remember it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Now, the opposite of pride is humility. That's what God calls us to be. He calls us to be humble. Jesus set the example. He's called us to be humble. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, this is the same Apostle Peter that's standing right here in front of Ananias in chapter 5. But he says in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If you want to live in the grace of God, stay humble. If you want to live... In opposition to God, live in pride. But if you want the blessing of God in your life and the flow of God in your life, he gives grace to the humble. That starts with the humility of, of humbling ourselves at salvation. But every day we have to get up and say, Lord, I bow before you to live for you in my life. So as, now as Ananias comes and presents this gift back at verse 3, uh, it says in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, um, he comes to present this gift and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? The end of verse 2, he lays it at Peter's feet. Verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. As Ananias comes and presents this financial gift, the Holy Spirit sees the real motive. I mean, no one else can see it, but the Holy Spirit can see it. And in some way, he informs the Apostle Peter, whether he speaks verbally right into Peter's ear, in some way the Holy Spirit supernaturally tells Peter, the gift is a fraud. The pride of wanting recognition leads to the accompanying sin of lying. And it's clear in verse 3, because he says, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit, it's clear in verse 3 that we have an orchestration of Satan himself trying to corrupt not just Ananias and obviously his wife Sapphira, but also to poison the entire work of the Lord. You see, Satan doesn't want to just destroy you. He wants to make sure that you are part of destroying the entire work of the church. Outside persecution didn't work. They threw him in jail Ended up with a great prayer meeting, place was shaken, more people were giving, more people were hearing the gospel, more people were being healed. Poison from the inside became Satan's goal. Poison the inside. 
discord among the inside, pride on the inside of the church. Introduce fake worship that glorifies people rather than God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but we have a lot of in this country fake worship that glorifies people rather than God. It's a sad reality. Our names shouldn't matter at all. I mean, I, you see some of these ministries you're watching on TV, I'm like, this entire thing, I don't think I've heard Jesus' name twice. But I've heard all about you and your ministry and the amazing things and all this other stuff. Fake worship that glorifies people rather than God. Satan has always wanted to introduce it. And has introduced it. G. Campbell Morgan, I can attest this myself, he says, the church has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without. It has been perpetually harmed and hindered by the perils from within. And that's so true. I mean, it, it's devastating when you see ministry leaders fall into sin. I mean, it just, it just destroys so many people's faith. It's devastating when we see uh, lies and gossip and, and discord among the brethren, which, which God says one of the things he hates. I was telling the first service, I, I've been saved since 1995. I, I've been in ministry, uh, at least serving in teaching capacities, deacon, elder, things like that since the late 90s. I took over pastor in the church in 2007 and still worked in my other career. I was bivocational for five and a half years. But I spent 17 years working in business and corporate America. And I, my experience, I have found that some of the worst ways I've ever been treated were from supposed Christians. Far and away. Then unsafe people. The unsafe people kind of expect, hey, hey, do your own thing. But Christians sometimes can be some of the most harmful, and Satan has done that, and he's sowed some of these things. And it's not, so it can be bitterness, but it can be, in this case, pride. And God's going to make sure he cleans up his own house, amen? In Joshua chapter 7, we have the sad story of Achan, the sad account of Achan. Uh, he had secretly taken, the, the, the walls of Jericho had fallen, and the men that were there were supposed to go in and take out all the spoils, but they weren't supposed to keep any of it. And Achan took some of the secret, took some of the uh, spoils secretly and hid them. It was some gold, it was some silver. Joshua had given the command that when the walls fall, that everything that comes out of there, the gold, the silver, the precious metals, all goes to the treasury. Joshua said, no one should keep even a speck of this stuff. Every bit of it's going to the treasury of God. It all belongs to God. He gave us the victory. He's given us the land, but he's not given us the gold and silver. That goes into the treasury. And if anyone was to keep anything, they were forewarned by Joshua, you will bring a curse on your household and the nation. Then they go to battle. The very next thing is they go to, they go to the city of Ai, and they go to try and take the city of Ai, and they get defeated badly. They get routed. 36 men die. They say, well, that 36, that's not a lot. It is if it's your husband. It is if it's your son, right? 36 people die. And when this happened, Joshua tore his clothes. And he was so, that's the kind of leader you want, right? Joshua tore his clothes and, and cried out to the Lord. He's like, what is happening? Why did you send us to Ai to have 36 men die? And the Lord revealed their sin in the camp. And he revealed it was Achan. And that Achan would not only have to 
die, but his entire family would have to die for the curse to be removed from Israel. We can forget that God is holy, can't we? But it's really foolish to forget that God is holy. We have to remind ourselves that God is holy. You guys know I've, I, I, my good friend, Dr. Sam Nadler, he's been here numerous times, and he has uh, just been a faithful mentor over the years. And I asked Sam one time, I, I, I probably asked him seven, eight years ago, um, Sam has studied, the, he's probably written more books than most of you and me have read. Uh, he's just, just been a student of the Word and studied the Bible. And I asked Sam, I said, Sam, some of the things in the Old Testament can be so harsh at times. You ever read some of the Old Testament? He's like, why would God do that to that level? Like Achan, his whole family, the donkeys, the animals, the children, everyone was stoned to death. And then they just put a massive pile over top. And then it said God's wrath ceased from being poured out. So that seems, and, I, and Sam goes, think about it like this. He's like, after that happened, would you take serious everything God has to say? <laughs> yes, right? He's like, it didn't have to happen but a couple of times, and it got everyone's attention. Now, you don't want to be the person on the receiving end of the example. Jan and I's fire are here. But God will do these things from time to time because he's holy and to remind us of how holy he is. Achan, in his lust for the gold and silver, he lost his fear of the Lord. At some point, he probably had it, but he lost it. He just didn't think Joshua was serious. Joshua was, do not, in any way, take any gold and silver. Achan's like, I don't think he means it. We live in a nation that's lost his fear of the Lord, don't we? People think God... It never sees. He's not going to do anything. He doesn't care. I can do whatever I want. But the same thing happens with Ananias and Sapphira. Their desire to stay in this nice, comfortable life while being praised for their supposed complete sacrifice, it distorts their prior vision because I believe that they didn't always have this. They kind of slid backwards. Now, it's safe to say that what God does here, because I, I, I'm not going to read it verse by verse, but you know what takes place. And after Ananias drops dead, the young men take him out and bury him. Three hours later, his wife comes back, or his wife comes, and Peter even talks to her and says, hey, did you sell it for this much? She says, yes. And then she passes. Immediately she falls at his feet and dies. It's safe to say that what God does here is both unique in both, it's unique in both the quickness and the severity. Wouldn't you say? That this is unique in the New Testament, especially in both the quickness and the severity of how God brings forth this judgment, especially in the New Testament. We see more of this kind of God immediately bringing his wrath in the Old Testament. We don't see it as often in the New Testament, but God's still saying, I'm still the same God. You might think, well, shouldn't this happen to someone who's committing like a violent crime or some outright immorality, or setting up some idol, or blasphemy. After all, isn't pride and hypocrisy and fake spirituality and withholding from God, isn't that all now pretty common in the church? Yes, it is. That's why Jesus writes to the seven churches in Asia in chapters 2 and 3, and he addresses all of that. 
because it was a problem and still is a problem. But four things to keep in mind as we kind of wind this down, four things to keep in mind here this morning if you're taking notes, and I put them each on the screen. You know, number one, God was protecting his church. This is the early church. This was the birth of the church. This was the root of the church. And because Satan himself was working to use Ananias and Sapphira, God was protecting the root from being destroyed and therefore the church being kind of snuffed out right out of the gate. So God was protecting the early church. And the early church at that time was so in love with Jesus, so filled with the Spirit. We've never seen a time in church history where people are like, selling their stuff like this and giving to one another. We've never seen anything like it. It's that there was a unified love and grace that to disrupt it at this time, which Ananias and Sapphira so foolishly were, you know, just we want that spotlight. To disrupt it with the sin of pride and deceit was akin to what Achan did and bringing a curse on the entire nation of Israel. This is akin to bringing a curse on the whole church. And God says, I'm not going to have it. This will be dealt with immediately. So he's protecting his church. Number two, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is still the same. And God was reminding all the believers, both then and now, that he is the same. That he remains holy. That he's not going to share his glory with you, me, Ananias, and Fire, or anybody else. And that sin and pride, he still will judge. He was reminding the whole rest of the church, hey, hey I'm still the same. Number three, he was establishing, God was establishing the apostles in much the same way that he established the Old Testament prophets. Remember the Old Testament prophets, they did what? Miracles. They spoke the word of God, and they even spoke forth judgment. And by the second time, and by the time Sapphira comes, Peter actually speaks forth judgment. He says, you're going to be carried out the same way. And these apostles, they were doing miracles at that time. When you get to the next part, you can see next week, even Peter's shadow was healing people. Amazing stuff. I mean, so they were, much like the prophets in the Old Testament, they were doing miracles. They were speaking the word of God. They would go on, some of the apostles would get writing the New Testament scriptures, the very things we're reading. They would write because they were given the word just like the prophets in the Old Testament. So God was establishing them to be, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, but they were part of the foundation. And so that the people would heed the apostles because Ananias and Sapphira did not heed what Peter had said, just like Achan did not heed what Moses had said. And then Lord, the, 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 the last one, you know, God's grace is amazing. His mercy is great. We're here this morning because of it. But God does not always delay in judgment. He could bring forth judgment. Anything he's ever done in the past, he could do today. And to think that that's impossible is a very presumptuous thought on our part, right? He doesn't always delay judgment. You ever notice that you know, you're reading an article and you're like, wow, I remember reading an article, this guy just robbed somebody jumps in a lake, and an alligator eats him. True story. You guys might have read that one. I'm like, why doesn't this always happen, you know? Um, because we would actually save a lot of money with the prison systems. Uh, the, the, uh, innocent people would be spared. Uh, and you couldn't blame, you know, the police officers. You can blame the alligator all you want. He doesn't care. You can't prosecute him. But every now and then, God does things that surprise us, and they really shouldn't surprise us. Because he's reminding us that you are a vapor, and he's still going to deal with things the way he chooses. Anything could be rendered at any time. Now, Peter was probably as shocked as anybody 
that Ananias dropped dead. He, he did not. When Ananias came to him, go back and you read it, you'll notice that Peter asked him a series of questions. Never once does he say, you're going to drop dead. Peter would have been, what in the world? All of a sudden, he just drops dead. He didn't pronounce any death on Ananias. He, he asked him, he said, why is you've, you've yielded to Satan, filling your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He asked him a series of questions. But it's also worth noting what a crushing blow it must have been for Ananias, who thought he would get a hero's welcome and got an apostle's rebuke. He was thinking he was going to say, Ananias, you are the most giving person we've ever met. We are going to name the next church after you. Instead, Peter says, why have you listened to Satan? What a crushing blow. You ever gone to a, a, a review with your boss thinking you were going to do great and you found out that you didn't do as good as you thought? And you drove home really bummed out, right? It didn't feel good. It wasn't exciting that you thought you were going to get a raise, and instead you're like, your job is just on the line. <laughs> worse, way worse than that, what he received. But it was God that struck him. Peter didn't have anything to do with that. Peter would have been a surprise to anybody. God strikes him dead, and Peter would immediately say, wow, this is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he would think. This is the same God of Moses and Joshua. When his wife later arrives, Peter does give her the opportunity to tell the truth. He says, did you sell her for this? And she, you know, she, instead of telling the truth, she doubles down on their plan. At that point, Peter knows she's going to join her husband. The Holy Spirit makes it clear. And just like Achan's whole family, husband and wife both are going to suffer this judgment together. So Ananias' wife falls. Now, this was not the joyous moment. This was a really dark day. I'm sure it was a tough day for Peter to even say, I mean, when you get to heaven, you know, he probably can tell you that was one of the hardest words ever came out of my mouth. You're now going to drop too. He loved this couple. I, I believe this couple was actually born again believers that actually got and a couple of reasons. We have hints that the, that the Bible says whom the Lord loves, he chastens. They didn't get away with this. Um, there's a lot of people that get away with things, but God loves you enough. He's going to chasten you. And sometimes there's sin that leads unto death. And this actually, God deals with it. But I believe that they're believers, and almost most everyone that I've read, students of the Bible, believe uh, that they were saved. But it wasn't a joyous moment. It wasn't like when the man was healed and 5,000 people got saved. Uh, but the seriousness of pride and the seriousness of sin and the danger of not fearing and revering the holiness of God is really puts us in a precarious place. The scriptures are still true. It still says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Sometimes you can reap it immediately. Sometimes it's 15 years later. Sometimes it's 30 years later. But if we don't turn from it, and remember, Sapphira had a chance to turn from it. She didn't. At least that moment, they kept that. As I mentioned, most students of the Bible believe that they were saved and they were believers in Jesus. Uh, but, and I'm not saying that definitively. I just, I, that's what I believe. That's what many believe. Uh, but if they slid back, they lost or failed to cultivate a fear of the Lord. You can be saved and still all of a sudden kind of lose your fear of the Lord. You ever had moments where you're like, what am I thinking? Who do I think I am? Right? 
You ever had those moments? You're like, who do I think I am? What gives me the right to kind of, God, you're God. I need to have a healthy fear of you. God's not wanting us to be afraid of him, but a worship and a reverence that brings wisdom. It's, it's an adoration. It's a humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's like why we got on our knees earlier. Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The death of Ananias and Sapphira, it brought about a great sense of the holiness of God that came upon the church. A church that was already walking in the Spirit, but they then began to sense the holiness of God, the purity of God. And I was reading in um, uh, my, uh, this little book that I've been going through. Um, he's talking about that every time there's been a genuine revival, people become just this heightened awareness of sin and impurity and the holiness of God. Wherever it's been poured out, Things that people just kind of, ah, I can do that, I can watch this, God didn't care that much. All of a sudden, there's this heightened awareness. And just as the Spirit was poured out on a church that was praying already in the Spirit, was walking in the Spirit, here the fear of the Lord, which obviously is related to the Spirit of the Lord too, but the fear of the Lord comes upon this church. Look at verse 11 as we close it here. So great fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things. And you're going to see next week, the power that comes from the purifying work, where the fear of the Lord comes upon this church, a church that was already walking in compassion and generosity, but the holiness and the purity that comes from this, God's going to use in a powerful way. And for all of us, we, we definitely need to know God's love. We definitely need to know his grace, and we need those things to daily walk with the Lord, but we also equally need a healthy fear and reverence for God. I've used the analogy many times. It always works in football season too. Uh, the coaches that you love the most are ones that you knew do not cross this line. But if you did, you would win. I mean, and if you didn't, there would be, there would be wins to be had, success would be had. And God's like, if you have a healthy fear of me, your way will be prosperous. The church will be prosperous. The family life, all of these things, it's essential. You know, it keeps us from harm and it keeps us in the life of the Spirit. I hope you'll agree with me, because I know the Scriptures do, there must be a fear of the Lord. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again that you don't always tell us the things that might be easy to hear, but the things that we need to hear. And Lord, we pray that we would heed these things. And Lord, we, uh, we are grateful that you're a holy God. And as we will now enter into this time of communion and partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're thankful, Lord, that all of us, all of us, Lord, have had sins and things that you have overlooked even before we were saved. But Lord, now with the covering the blood of Jesus, Lord, you see, you see the blood of your Son instead of our many sins and transgressions. And Lord, we just pray that you prepare our hearts as we take of these elements. And we're so thankful, Lord, that, uh, that you have brought us into your holiness through the righteousness of your Son. 
Amen. We're going to take these elements, and if you don't have the Lord's Supper elements, raise your hand. I want to make sure everybody has them. Uh, I would remind you, don't take them in an unworthy manner. If you're currently living in a way that is opposed to God, if you're living in some kind of relationship you shouldn't be in, if you've got unforgiveness, if you're harboring hatred towards somebody, if you're doing anything, Lord, that you, you know, we're not perfect, but if you, it's called known sin. If you have any known sin, confess it, make it right. You don't, God's still holy. You don't want to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But I was telling the first service, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, God's timing. I didn't plan on having chapter 5 coincide with the taking the Lord's Supper, right? When I mapped out my calendar, this is the way it landed. But here's the thing that's really cool. I believe in Ananias and Sapphira. We will see them in heaven. I believe they were believers that not only did they have a bad week, they had a really bad day, a really bad day. But isn't it great to know that even if you sinned on your last day on earth, God saves not because of one specific sin, but because he saves because of one specific day of salvation. And they would have a big regret when Jesus says, well, here you guys are. You could have been down there with Peter, but you did not listen, and you come home early. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But I don't look at Ananias and Sapphira as way, wor Ananias and Sapphira is way worse than the rest of us. I believe God has spared us many a time where we deserve way more chastening than we got. How about you? Yes. So the mercy of God, you can look at them and say, you know what? But by the grace of God, I'm sure Peter later would look back on his life and say, man, I saw a lot of other people that deserved to be striked down, but they got to repent. And they didn't get but that one little three-hour period. So, but that's why the blood of Jesus is such good news, isn't it? That he covers all of our sins. Any mistakes you've made, God can cleanse it even now. So we're going to take a few moments. Jackson's going to just play quietly and just uh, reflect and just... Thank the Lord for your own salvation. Then I'll read these passages and we'll take these elements together.
aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus? And if Jesus didn't come, no sins could be forgiven. If he did not come and live a sinless life, he did not come and die the suffering death that he died on the cross, no sins could be forgiven. Not the one lie. I, I've told this, I, um, I told the first service yesterday, I was, I was studying and I get a doorbell ring and my wife was, just me and my wife were at the house and she was busy doing something and the doorbell rang and I'm like, oh man, I'm in the middle of studying. It was two Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, so as I readjusted my attitude, because these are two people that God loves, I presented the gospel to them, and so I had to stop studying the Bible and actually present the gospel. God's like, hey, you're studying about the gospel. You're going to have to go give it now. And, I, and, 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 uh, and I told him, I said, let's think. Why would do you really believe that Jesus came and suffered the cross? Because in their, their belief system, if you don't come into the Jehovah's Witness, uh, you just cease to exist when you die. You just, you're, you just don't exist anymore. You're, you just... I'm like, do you realize how many people would be just fine with that? Tons of people would be fine with that. Epicurean, eat, live, tomorrow we die, doesn't matter. I said, no, no, no. Jesus came to die because our sins had to be paid for. Either he pays for them or we pay for them in hell. He'll either take it for us or we have to endure eternal punishment because we rejected his payment. You should have seen the look on their faces. I know they've heard it, but I don't know. The Lord was just speaking, and they actually ended up thanking me. I, my wife got on, we got on our knees. We just prayed for them after that. But here's the thing. If you don't have the blood of Jesus, you don't have salvation. So we had to have him come. Amen? And that's why the apostles were so excited to tell this message, because they knew that, that Judaism couldn't save them. Islam, which didn't exist at that time, but not, all those things, the other world religions could not save them. And even one sin, the best day you've ever had is not good enough to earn you 10 seconds in heaven. Amen? Even the day when you thought you only had a half a sin all day. If there's, you know, we think of things like this. We're like, what is a half a sin? God's like, you don't have a half a sin. You have a whole sin. But the best day you've ever lived or I've ever lived would not earn us a second in heaven. And that's why we needed what Jesus did. If you have the elements, let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving your body and your blood on the night of your betrayal. Uh, for our salvation. Lord, we can never say thank you enough, but we are grateful for your sacrifice on our behalf. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.